For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Turks, one of the associate pastors, and uh, we're in a series on the sovereignty of God. Uh, today will be part four. Next week I'll finish off the series as part five, and then in uh, June I won't be uh, speaking because I'll be doing the uh, Israel course, but you guys are in for a treat. Stefan will be speaking for a couple of weeks, and then Pastor Ray has some amazing stuff too, so uh, June's going to be a, a great month. But anyway, I'm going to finish off the uh, sovereignty now this week and next weekend. And uh, the sovereignty of God. God is a king, right? And he has a kingdom and he's in charge and he's in control of things. And at the start of this series, I think for many of us, the sovereignty of God was sort of an abstract philosophical concept. And my goal throughout this series has been to take this abstract, you know, philosophical concept that God is sovereign and, and put rubber to the road and make it practical. What does that mean? What is he in charge of? What is he controlling? What is he doing? And so we've been working our way through seven things, seven things that God is actively in control of and doing in the world uh, all around us. And so, so far in this series, we've looked at the fact that he restrains evil. We've looked at the fact that he decides who our leaders will be, that he controls all of the world's weather, that he upholds the laws of nature. And last week, he feeds the animals, makes plants grow and decides um, when they will die. All right. And so today I want to deal with number six. And uh, we're going to talk about the fact that God is sovereign over your life from start to finish. So, so far in this series, we've talked a lot about some of the bigger things, right? And the laws of nature and, and God with world leaders and, so, and all that sort of stuff. Today, I want to talk about your personal life and the fact that God is much more sovereign uh, over your personal life than probably you ever thought before. He's sovereign right from the beginning until the end. And then just to give you a little preview of next week, because I've been getting a lot of questions about this. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me questions about the devil. Okay, fine, Chris. Uh, God is in control. He's sovereign. And he's the king overall. And then people are asking, but where does the devil fit into this, right? Because the Bible talks about the devil being the prince of the power of the air. And obviously we know that the devil is doing a lot of bad things. Uh, how does the devil fit uh, with God's sovereignty? Where does he fit in this picture? And so just to let you know, we're going to spend all of next week uh, talking about the devil. And we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about him. There's a, a lot in there. But this week, it's about you and it's about me and it's about us and the fact that God is sovereign over our lives from start to finish. So bow your heads with me, close your eyes, let's pray. I'm also going to pray for the marriage retreat. Pastor Ray is leading a marriage retreat right now, and so I want to pray for that. And uh, then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, uh, first of all, we just want to lift up uh, the marriage retreat. Father, they're coming to the end of their last session right now as I, as I pray. And uh, Father, this whole marriage retreat idea was your idea, this idea to start a marriage retreat and a marriage ministry here at this church, Father. Uh, you have a vision for this church. I believe that someday we want to be a divorce-free church. And we want to be a church, Father, where your glory goes out into all the surrounding area that people, unsaved and saved alike, know that there must be a God because at Southland there, their marriages just shine. And so, Father, I pray for every one of the couples that went on this one, the third marriage retreat, Father. I pray that each one of those couples is going to go up two or three levels in their, in their marriage, in oneness, in godliness, Father. Those that went to this retreat with a good marriage are going to come out, Lord, closer to great. And those ones that went in with a very poor, struggling marriage are going to come out closer to good, Father. And I pray that as a church, Father, you're going to make us effective uh, at oneness and at spreading this message, Lord, of happy, joy-filled, loving marriage marriages. And I thank you, God, for what you're going to do. And then for us, Father, here this morning, you are sovereign. You're the king. You're overall. I absolutely love you. And I pray that at the end of this message, Jesus, all of us here are going to love you more. Help me to be clear. Help us to understand what your word is saying. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God rules over your life from start to finish. Start to finish. Uh, we have this idea, as we kind of look back over our lives, most of us 
we tend to take too much credit. We look back over our lives and we see, look at what a great business person I am. Look at what a great musician I am. Look what a great whatever, leader, teacher, athlete, whatever. We look back over our lives and we think to ourselves, um, what I am today is the sum total of the choices I've made. Now, Certainly it's true that you have made many choices and your choices have shaped who you are. There's no question and we'll talk about the fact that you have choices throughout this message. You do have choices and your choices have hugely affected uh, who you are today. But the fact of the matter is this idea that our lives today, I've heard people say this before, the, the idea that my life today is simply the accumulation of the choices I have made is completely false. The truth of the matter is, again, yes, my choices have had a lot to do with who I am today, and your choices have had a lot to do with who you are today, but actually God's choices for you have had far more to do with who you are today than your choices. And God is far more sovereign. It's not like you started with an empty pallet, God gave you an empty pallet, and you just made a life out of that pallet. That is not true. And so I'm going to tell you some very obvious things today to start with. And then as we get into this message, we'll look at some less obvious things. But I want to show you even in the obvious things here in these first few minutes that God made some choices for you before you were born that have more to do with who you are today than the choices you've made since you were born. And the first set of choices that God made for you before you were even born that have, a, have had a massive impact on your life, more than any other choices you've made since then, is God chose where and when you would be born. Again, I told you I would tell you some obvious things. That's an obvious thing, but let's just think about that for a couple of moments. See, again, we like to look back at our lives and say, look at the life I've made for myself. But the truth of the matter is, could you have made the life for yourself that you've made if God had said that you would be born in the middle of Africa? I doubt it. Could you have made the life for yourself that you've made if you had been born up in the Arctic Circle somewhere to an Inuit family or Who knows where else in this world, some radically different place. The fact of the matter is, this life that you've made for yourself, truth of the matter is, God puts you in a place where that life could happen. He puts you in a family and in a culture where you learned certain things, where certain people encouraged you in certain ways, where certain opportunities were there for you so that you could make your life the way it is today. If you had been born in the middle of Africa or somewhere far up north, your life would look radically different today would look radically different today. You would think differently. You would have different friends and associates. You would have different perspective. You would have different likes and dislikes. The truth of the matter is that just by making that choice of where and when you would be made, God set you on a certain path. And you have a range of choices in that path, but it's like a tunnel. And God put you in this tunnel, and he sent you in a certain direction. We're used to thinking of our lives as being sort of, I have an infinite number of possibilities before me and I just made a whole bunch of choices to make myself. It's not true. You don't have an infinite number of choices before you. You were just by choosing where and when you would be born, God narrowed your choices to this and put you in a certain direction. And it's very important for us to realize that. But not only that, uh, God actually narrowed it down even further for us. And by the way, I mean, even just... I mean, narrowing this down, even from an Africa, Canada question, even just God deciding which family you would be put into had a huge effect on you. I mean, you take two families living on the same street, same town, same country, two houses side by side, their neighbors, and you put the kid in one house or the other, and that kid's going to turn out totally different. And is that true? I mean, just totally depending on how these parents interact in their marriage, what they value, what they don't value, what the dad is good at, what the mom is good at. I mean, you just put the same kid and you put them in one, one different houses side by side, kid turns out 
totally, completely differently. And none of that, again, has anything to do with your choice. It has to do with choices God made. He put you on a path and put you in a direction right at the very beginning. Now, out of that, you've made some choices. But again, if you had been born somewhere else, those choices wouldn't have added up to who you are today. Now, but God actually narrowed this path even further for you. Because not only did he decide where and when and which family and all that sort of stuff, not only did he decide that for you, but he also decided what you would be good at and what your aptitudes would be, what you would gravitate to. And this had a huge impact on you. You didn't just randomly choose to become a musician. You didn't just randomly choose to become a business person. God actually put you in a place where those things could happen, the where and the when. And then he put certain aptitudes and desires in you. Let me just read you some scripture and then we'll get into this, okay? Uh, Psalm 139. We've read this passage many, many times before. It's a very obvious passage to use here. But I want to start the message here. Psalm 139 verse 13 says this. For you, David speaking to God, for my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So not only did God decide where and when you would be born, he knit you together and every bit about you, your IQ, I mean, God decided, is it going to be 60 or is it going to be 150 or somewhere in between? He decided exactly your IQ, your personality. He decided, I mean, you came out, some of you came out, you're good with your hands. Some of you came out like me, just absolutely useless, okay? And so, but he decided that, okay? Again, your life is not an empty pallet and you decided, I'm going to be good with my hands. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and now you're a successful mechanic or whatever. That, that option isn't, was never open to me, Okay? It's just not there. I could work hard at it all my life. I could want to be good at that sort of stuff. I just can't be. He narrowed down your possibilities even further. He made you to be good at certain things. He gave you aptitudes for certain things. So, for example, you might be here today. You might be a successful musician. You look back on your life. Look at all the hard work I've put in. Look at all the practice. Look at all the, the, the schooling I went to. And look what a great musician I've become. Now, again, certainly, you made choices to work hard. You've got to work hard to develop your gifts. There's no question you've made some choices there and those choices have affected you. No question. But this idea that you just decided to become a musician, you just made choices. God gave you empty palate. You said, I'll be a musician. That's not what happened. What happened is God said, I'm going to make a musician and that's what you've become. He made you good at it. When you were growing up, you weren't just making choices. I'm going to become good at music. What really happened as you grew up is you discovered who God made you to be. Because he made you to be a musician, and then he, and then he gave you certain aptitudes. So you were just young, and you, you know, someone, you had a chance at school or whatever to do some music stuff, and you discovered, I like this. And you discovered, I'm pretty good at this. And you discovered that when I do this, I kind of come alive. And so you did it more, and you discovered more, and you did more and more and more, and now... Here you are, you're a musician. But God said at the beginning you would be a musician. He puts you on a water slide and you've just been right down to the end where he wanted you to go. Now again, you have choices in there. You can be lazy with your gift. You can be wicked with your gift. You can be selfish with your gift. Or you can, or you can use your gift to give glory to God and advance his kingdom. But the truth of the matter is, you did not have an infinite number of possibilities before you when you were born. God chose when and where you would be born. He chose what you would be good at. He put you on the slide and he sent you in a certain direction. And here you are today. That's the sovereignty of God. He's in charge. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, 
For we are his, God's, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I, each one of us, God's workmanship, he specifically crafted you for specific good works. He has specific things he put you on the earth to do to advance his kingdom and bring light to darkness and bring glory to his name. And only you, the way you're made, can carry those things out. He just created you beforehand. And again, You might resist him. You might make choices and resist him, be lazy with your gift or whatever. But in the end, you've basically gone the direction he puts you in. And you can't really escape out of it. He prepared good works beforehand so that we should walk in them. There's this idea in our culture that that we have to find our path and blaze our own path. And it's actually not true. When you understand the sovereignty of God, what you find is that he made a path for you. Your job is just to walk in it. He made a path already for you. So yes, you've made some choices and that's where you are today. But, you know, I don't know what the percentage is. 80, 90% of who you are today has more to do with the choices God made before you were even born than with the choices you've made since you were born. It's huge. It's huge. Well, so far in this message, I haven't told you anything really brand new again. The fact that God is sovereign over where and when we're born. The fact that God is sovereign over, you know, our strengths and our abilities and aptitudes. Uh, We all, yeah, totally. We're all on board with that. Okay, good. Um, but God is not just sovereign over our strengths and abilities. If God is the one who knits us together in our mother's womb, if God is the one who specifically puts together each piece of us and our IQ and our personality and everything about us, if God is the one who literally stitches us together in the womb, then that means that God is also sovereign over our weaknesses and our disabilities. Is that not true? See, and this is where, up to this point in this message, everybody goes, yeah, God's sovereign, over our abilities, God's sovereign over our strengths, yeah. And what, where we stop on the sovereignty of God, most of us as Christians, is we don't talk about the fact that if he knit you together in your mother's womb, he knit you together, he was over in charge of all of it. Which means that he purposely gave you some disabilities and some weaknesses because all of us are on a continuum, right? None of us has our perfect 100% resurrected body, you know, totally healthy. So we're all on a continuum here of weakness and infirmity and disability handicapped to various levels. And of course, some people have much more severe physical and mental disabilities and handicaps than others, but we're all in this continuum. And what I'm saying is God's sovereign over that continuum too. He decided what weaknesses and disabilities you would have. And you say, no, 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 that's not God. That's, uh, that's the devil, right? Well, let's see in the scripture. Exodus 4 verse 11 God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. This is from the Lord's mouth himself. He says this. Then the Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Let me read that to you again. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You say, That's horrible. No, that's true. That's from God's own mouth. You say, what kind of a what kind of a mean God would torture people by giving by intentionally giving them severe handicaps? That can't be. A loving God wouldn't do wouldn't torture people like that. A loving God wouldn't condemn people to you know such a substandard, miserable life. Okay? Well, let's talk about that for a moment, shall we? Because we need to punch at an assumption here, and it's an assumption that many of us Christians have bought into, okay? And it's an assumption that abortion advocates love. I've talked about abortion a few times in this series. 
But abortion advocates love this idea that if a person has a physical or mental disability or handicap, they love to say, hey, that person has a substandard, miserable, miserable quality of life. Therefore, if we see in the womb that a baby is going to be born with a physical handicap or disability, we should just kill it so it doesn't have to grow up and have that miserable standard of life. Right? And the assumption there is, is that a person with a handicap is going to have a horrible life. But the thing is, us Christians, now of course we would say about abortion, that's horrible. No, 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 we should not kill a baby in the womb because of that. But the fact of the matter is that we actually believe their assumption. And, I'll t- and, I, and I can prove to you that, that we believe that assumption. We, can, if we believe that assumption if we read Exodus 4, 11 up there, and if we say God's cruel to do that. Because we look at that and say God's cruel to make someone mute or deaf or blind or with a severe handicap because that person is now condemned to a tortured, miserable existence. Well, I challenge that assumption here today. Where does it say in Scripture that if a person has a severe handicap or disability that that person is doomed to a miserable life? The fact of the matter is that God can give a person a handicap or a disability and that person can still experience life in its fullness. That person can experience love and joy and peace just like anyone else. For example, I know several people in this church with Down syndrome. And many of you no doubt will know some people with Down syndrome. And the people in this church that I know with Down syndrome are some of the happiest, sweetest, most loving, gentlest, wonderful people that you'll meet here in this church. Okay, And uh, in fact, some of, the, some of the people with Down syndrome I know in this church are probably happier than three-quarters of the people sitting here right now who all call, and we all call ourselves Christians and none of us has a severe handicap to speak of. So is God mean for giving someone a handicap and then filling them with the joy of the Lord and his love and peace? Oh, what a cruel God that is. What a cruel God that is to make someone with this physical disability. Yes, do they have some extra challenges? No question. But they can still have the same, they can have a wonderful quality of life on the inside. It's a wrong assumption to say that people with a handicap or disability, that they're living a tortured, miserable existence. That's a wrong assumption. For example, let me show you this guy. Uh, his, Nick, his name is Nick Vojacic. Okay? Nick Vojacic. And as you can see up there, he was born without uh, any arms or legs. Okay? Now, again, most people would look at a case like this and they would say, what kind of a God? That can't have been God. That's what many Christians would say. No, no, no. God didn't do that to Nick. Who did it? Oh, the devil must have done it, but it certainly wasn't God. God was not in charge of that, right? Because we would say, that would be torture. Why would God make someone with such a severe handicap? I mean, think about this. Think about living your whole life without any arms or legs. What kind of a life would that be, right? And you would think that such a person would be living a miserable life, a really low quality of life. Well, the only problem with that kind of thinking is uh, Nick happens to be one of the happiest people on planet Earth. You can look him up on YouTube this week. I would challenge you to do that. Uh, he, and you can find all kinds of YouTube videos of him uh, swimming and skateboarding and skiing. And he does all that without arms and legs. He's a really crazy guy with a really crazy sense of humor. And he also happens to love God very much. And the amazing thing about Nick is he's got a severe handicap. That would be considered a severe, severe handicap, a severe disability. And the crazy thing about Nick is He doesn't think he's been cursed. He actually thinks he's been blessed by God because his inner quality of life is so good. Let me read you a quote from Nick. This is what he says. I'm often asked that very question. Nick, how can you be so happy? You may be dealing with your own challenges, so I'll give you the quick answer up front. 
I found happiness when I realized that as imperfect as I may be, I am the perfect Nick Vujicic. In other words, God didn't make any mistakes with Nick. The devil didn't do this to Nick. The key to him finding happiness in life and a good quality of life was, first of all, figuring out that God never made any mistakes. Look what he says next. I am God's creation designed according to his plan for me. Think about that for a moment. This is where Nick finds comfort and peace and joy in life is not in thinking that, you know, the devil did this to me or God wouldn't do this to me. He, re he found joy when he realized God did do this to me. And the fact that God did it to me means that there's a purpose in this because God is good. So I am exactly the way I'm supposed to be. See, the fact of the matter is, and he actually goes on, and I didn't have room for the rest of this quote here. I'll just read this and I'll go on. He goes on to say, that's not to say that there isn't room for improvement. I'm always trying to be better so I can better serve God and the world. His, uh, his thoughts are all about how to serve God and, and everybody else. See, the sovereignty of God is actually the foundation for comfort in the midst of severe trial or disability or handicap. It's the sovereignty of God. Because again, the sovereignty of God says, this is not a random accident. This is not because the devil wanted to hurt me. This is because God did it. And if it's because God did it, I know he's good. Therefore, this has a reason. He's got a very good purpose. I'm the way I'm supposed to be. But of course, again, we have so much false theology. That, I mean, the church in North America, we've got layers of false theology being built up through books and TV and just wrong teaching about this. And, and constantly, this truth right here, and it's robbing many people. There are people sitting here right now today. You are being robbed of joy and comfort in the midst of your trial and your disability and stuff because you haven't understood this fact. Because there are Christians out there that keep teaching God doesn't do stuff like this to people. Well, let's just think about that for a moment. If God didn't do this to Mr. Wojciech, then how do we explain it? How do we explain it? Tell me. How we explain this, if God didn't do it, how do we explain it? Well, we have a couple options. First option is, and we've looked at this one earlier in this message again, but we'll do it again. The first option is, in this series, I mean, the first option is that uh, God made a mistake. Is that comforting? Is that a comforting picture for you of God? That Nick was supposed to be born with arms and legs, and God, who, who knows, coffee break, some of the angels were misbehaving, and uh, he comes out, oh! Nick Vujicic was, he's missing his arms and legs. Shoot. And is that, is that comforting to anyone here? God didn't do it. He must have made a mistake. Now here's the thing. Even if that were possible, and it isn't possible for God to make a mistake. But let's say it was possible for God to make a mistake. Even if it was possible, he has the power to fix it. If this was a mistake, he could have fixed it right away. But the fact that he could have just put his arms and legs on. Oh, I made a mistake. Put arms and legs on. Here's the thing. Nick has lived his whole life without arms and legs. That tells us something about God and his plans for Mr. Vujicic, doesn't it? It wasn't a mistake, okay? Well, what's a, what are our other options? Okay, well, it wasn't a mistake, but maybe, and then this is the one you'll commonly hear Christians saying, well, God didn't want that to happen. Really? You can sleep well at night? You can sleep well at night thinking God wanted Mr. Wojciech or whatever issue you're struggling with, that God actually wanted him to have arms and legs, but he ended up without them anyway. Is that comforting? That God might want something for you and for your life, and he might have a plan for your life, but then the devil comes along and says, actually, you know what? I don't want him to be born with arms and legs, and the two have a fight, and the devil wins? Really? That's not comforting. 
Now, of course, I know that there is a devil, and that's why all the next week we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and the devil and where he fits in all this. And of course, the devil is at work, and he's, he's our adversary, and he's doing bad things. But the fact of the matter is that the devil is, comes firmly under the sovereignty of God. The devil is not sovereign. God is. God's in charge. God's even in charge of the devil. And so the devil doesn't, there's no wrestling match and God says, I want to be born with legs and the devil says no and then somehow he gets born the devil's way. That's not how it works at all. When the devil does things here on this earth, he does things within boundaries given to him by God. He has to be allowed by God. We see this in the book of Job, yes? The book of Job is, shows us a picture of the sovereignty of God and how the devil fits under that. The devil wants to attack Job and what does he have to do? He has to ask permission. He asks permission. And then God gives him the guidelines. You, you can do this, 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 but you can't do this. And so Satan goes and he attacks Job, okay? And, and, and he brings some catastrophes to Job. And I want you to see how Job responds, okay? Job 2 verse 10. Job says to his wife, you are talking like a foolish woman. Incidentally, guys, he's under a lot of stress, okay? <laughs> he's, he's under a lot of stress. You should, that's why he's talking like, you should never talk like this to your wife, okay? I have never done it. I'm not planning to ever do it, but he's under a lot of stress. So he says this, okay? You're talking like a foolish woman. And now he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Notice that, that Job isn't find, doesn't find comfort. The whole book of Job, Job never once finds comfort by saying the devil did this to me. He says, will I accept good from God and not trouble? He says, it's ultimately from God. Now, we know as we read the book of Job, it technically, it's actually Satan who carries out some of these attacks. But the fact of the matter is that Satan had to get permission. So ultimately, this is coming from God, which means that ultimately it has to be for Job's good. God must have a purpose in order to allow it. And so the scripture goes on to say, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. In other words, Job had the right theology. And you'll find this right through the book of Job. Throughout the book of Job, Job's problem is not with the devil, it's with God. He's struggling with the why. But ultimately, the only comfort we'll find, we won't always know the why, we won't always know it. But ultimately, the only comfort we can take in, in handicap and disability and hardship and weakness is the fact that God is in control. Therefore, this must be for a purpose. And that's very, very important. It must have a purpose. If we go back to Nick Vujicic for just a second, I want to show you one more quote. Fantastic quote here about purpose and handicap. I'm officially disabled, but I'm truly enabled because of my lack of limbs. My unique challenges have opened up, think about this, unique opportunities to reach so many in need. I mean, that, there is a God perspective if I ever saw one. My unique challenges have opened up unique opportunities to reach so many in need. Just imagine what is possible for you. After all, you are his creation. He made you for a purpose. Therefore, your life cannot be limited any more than God's love can be contained. God is sovereign over your abilities. He is also completely 100% sovereign over your disabilities. Now you say, well, what kind of purpose? Again, Exodus 4.11, it is I who makes people, you know, mute or deaf or seeing or blind. It is I, says the Lord. You say, what kind of purposes could God have for that? Well, again, he is wise and he is good and he is infinite in his, in his knowledge and wisdom. There are, I'm sure there are many, many reasons of how he can use these things for good. But let me just show you two really important ones. 
Okay? Two really important ones. Why God sovereignly decides to give us disability and weakness and these sorts of things. And the first one is um, because he wants to show his glory so that more people will believe in him. Okay? If we uh, think about, again, Nick Vujicic. Uh, Nick now travels around the world. I, I've seen him at conferences and stuff. And uh, uh, not in person, but on video and stuff. But I've seen him speaking. And he now speaks around the world to thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year. And many, many, many people get saved listening to Nick Vujicic. Many people. Now, here's the thing. Uh, he would not be traveling around the world and speaking to thousands and thousands of people if he had his arms and legs. Isn't that true? If he had his arms and legs, if he didn't have those severe disabilities, that severe handicap, if he didn't have that, he would just be a normal guy. No one would listen to him. And if he was just a normal guy, not nearly so many people would get saved. I mean, if I talk to people about Jesus, again, and we all have to, it's not just like people with severe disabilities should talk about Jesus. We all have to, right? But if I talk to people about Jesus and I tell them, you know, you need Jesus in order to have joy in your life. Now, some people, the Holy Spirit will work through that and he'll get some people saved. But a lot of unsaved people will look at a person like me saying that and they'll say to themselves, well, he's healthy, he has a good marriage, of course he's happy. Now, that's not true. What they don't know is that I actually do need Jesus. I actually, every one of us needs Jesus in order to have life inside. But they can't see it. It's not obvious to them, right? But when a guy like Nick Vujicic gets up in front of thousands of people and says that there is a God and he can give you joy and peace and love in your life no matter what, they look at him with his severe disability and they look at the smile on his face and the love that comes out of him and his energy and they say there must be a God. And so it's exactly the handicap that Nick has that gives him a platform to speak to the world and to see many people saved from hell. And this is exactly in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10, famous verse, my power is made perfect in weakness, right? But he, this God speaking to Paul, says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's exactly in the weakness that God gets a platform to show himself so that many people can get saved. Isn't that true? It's exactly in the weakness. And without that weakness, many people would go to an eternity away from Jesus. But my power is made perfect in weakness. So God will use handicap to raise himself up and show people that he's real. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I just want to hit, um, just for a moment, I got a rabbit trail here for a bit. This isn't in my notes, but... but um, uh, there's a theology out there and it's really deceptive and I've seen it again and again and I just saw it again this past week in a popular book written by an author that's usually very good. But, um, and I just thought, you know what, I gotta hit it because many of you won't even be able to see the deception when you come across this. But there's a deception being taught out there and it ties exactly together with what I'm saying right here. There's a deception out there right now that's taught by a lot of authors and, and, and preachers and stuff these days and here's where, how it goes. They go to the Lord's Prayer and you know how in the Lord's Prayer it says... Uh, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And, it's, and then Jesus gets to this place where he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know that part, right? Uh, we, and so, and what these teachers, there's a whole bunch of teachers nowadays, it's a very popular teaching right now. What they're teaching is, okay, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that anytime we pray for a sickness here on earth, it should always be healed. And the way they approach it is this. They say, is there sickness in heaven? And everybody reading the book or listening to the teaching goes, no, there's no sickness in heaven. Well, on earth as it is in heaven. 
And everybody goes, wow. And everybody goes, doesn't that sound good? Like, it just sounds so right. Some of you are sitting there right now, and you're like, that just sounds so right. It does sound so right. Let's pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. And they'll also say, there's no lack or poverty in heaven. Therefore, we can pray it here, and we'll have no more poverty or lack. And I just think, boy, someone needs to tell the Chinese Christians about this. They haven't figured it out yet. Someone needs to tell the persecuted church about this quick. You can just pray as it is in heaven here on earth. There's no persecution in heaven. They should just be able to pray persecution away. They should be able to pray their poverty away. It sounds so right. Again, it it only sounds right in countries like ours, but nonetheless, um, it sounds right. What's the problem with that? Let me tell you the problem with that logic. Here's the problem with that logic. There's no unsaved people in heaven. That's the problem with that logic. There's no unsaved people in heaven. If you, if some of these faith teachers, if they would go and pray over Nick Wojcicek, because they would say he should be healed of his handicap. Because is Nick Wojcicek going to have arms and legs in heaven? 100% he will. Yes, he will. There's not going to be sickness or infirmity or disability or handicap in heaven. So they would say he should have him here right now. So they could pray and pray and pray that he would have him. And you know what God would say? You're wasting your time. Because if God would give Nick Wojcicek arms and legs right now, there would be thousands of people that wouldn't hear the message of Jesus Christ. Because that's how God is using him right now. And many people are being saved from an eternity in hell by God showing his power through a weakness. When Jesus prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's, ultimately there's going to be no sickness or disease. In the meantime, the real thing of God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven is let's get everybody saved on earth. And when Jesus comes back and there's only saved people on earth, so we don't have to witness anymore, at that point, there's also going to be no more sickness or disease and because God won't have to use those things anymore to win people out of this dark world. Very, very important. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, of course, uh, we could go too far with this and we could say, well, God never heals then. I mean, then God is just so sovereign. He gave you what he gave you. You just have to deal with it. If you have a sickness or disability or handicap, whatever, you shouldn't pray for healing because God's just going to do what he's going to do. That's not true either. See, because God can either get glory, power through weakness, or he can get glory through healing and miracles. And the thing is, like this whole series, he's sovereign. He chooses which one it is. Let me show you this. John chapter 9, an example of God getting glory and winning people to Christ. Through a healing, John chapter 9, as he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples, they don't want to say, okay, yeah, loving God wouldn't do this to people. Loving God doesn't make people be born blind. It must be a sin, right? It must be his parents' sin. There's got to be a demon or a devil in there somewhere. And I want you to see what Jesus says. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus says, sovereignty of God, guys. God did this to him. And he did it for a reason. His reason was he wanted to display his works through them. Okay? Through him. And now let's look at what happens in the rest. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So think about this. This is the sovereignty of God again. God decides at birth, and this man is now a grown man. When Jesus heals him, he's a grown man. So how old is he? We don't know. 18, 20, 30, we don't know. But he's been blind all his life for a long, long time. God intentionally made him blind. Made him blind at birth when he knit him together in his mother's womb 
and left him blind all these years because he sovereignly knew he was going to set up an appointment that one day, many years later, he was going to make sure that this blind man was in the right spot at the right time, that Jesus would come along and heal him. He was made blind so that he could have this meeting with Jesus and be healed so that many people would see that Jesus is God and many people would get saved, including the blind man. So I ask again, is God cruel when he gives people a handicap or a disability? Is he cruel if he makes someone with a disability or weakness or, a, or an infirmity and then fills them with love and joy on the inside and gets lots of people saved and out of hell through what he's doing in them? No. He's not cruel. He's not mean. He's good. He's very, very good. And he decides. So you say, well, what's our, what's our job in all this when we have an infirmity or a weakness? Our job is to do just what Paul did, and that is pursue a relationship with God. And then you see, what does he want? Lord, in this infirmity, weakness, disability of mine, do you want to display your power through weakness or do you want to display your power through healing? You pursue him. You're not apathetic. God's just going to do what he's going to do. It says in James, you have not because you ask not. Apathy won't get you where you need to be. But you pursue God and then he shows you. And then either he, sit, he puts power through weakness or he heals you. And he gets glory then either way, whatever he decides, all right? So one of the reasons God gives people, he's, remember, remember Exodus 4.11, it is I who makes people mute, deaf, seeing, or blind says the Lord. So one of the reasons he does that is because he wants to get glory through people like Nick Wojcik and many millions of other people. He wants to get glory through them so that more people can get saved. There's a second big reason why God gives these things out and that is so that people can experience a greater measure of him. Isn't this true? I mean, this, this is true, capital T-R-E. U-E, true. I better get the spelling right if I'm going to do that, right? Uh, I almost just went T-R-E, but anyway... Um, this is true. I mean, if you look back over your life, you look back over your life and you remember back to the seasons in your life when you were, the, when you were walking the closest with God, when your inner life was just alive with the Holy Spirit, you were filled with his love, you were hearing his voice all the time, you were relying on him, you had a desire to pray. I mean, as a pastor, I, I, as my job here in the church, I often get to run into people um, where they're right in that season of life and you just bring up God in the conversation. You just bring up God in the conversation and right away their eyes are wet. You know, you, you've met people like that and many of you have been in a season in your life where you were there and you were just so soft to the things of God and you were so close to God. And, and so if you look back over your life and you look at those seasons when you were like that, I'll bet you anything, almost all of them came in the hard times, not in the easy times. Is that not true? It's not, it, for most of us, 98% of the time here on planet Earth, it is not in the easy times when everything's going good. That's not the time when your t- eyes are welling up with tears because of what God's doing in your life. It's when you're right in the midst of the crisis and the disability and the handicap and the hurt. It's right when you're there that you are most alive on the inside. Isn't that true? So is God a mean God if he gives you some kind of hardship or infirmity or disability so that you will depend on him more so that you can be more filled with his spirit? Oh God, I'm just so full of your joy and love. You're torturing me. You're so mean. Or would we rather be like what these teachers are teaching that God wants you to always be healthy and happy and all that sort of stuff? Would you rather be this person who God makes you 100% healthy every single day of your life and 100% prosperous every single day of your life and so you go through your whole life and you never once think about God or think that you need him or turn to him and depend on him and experience him and then at the end of your life you die and go to hell? Is that the better way? Or would you rather God in his kindness and his eternal perspective do what's best for you in eternity? 
and give you short-term pains and short-term hardships in order to cause you to turn to him so that he can fill you with his love and joy and spirit and later you can be fully healed and live with him for eternity in heaven. Fanny Crosby, no doubt most of you have heard of Fanny Crosby, one of the most famous uh, poets and hymn writers in all of Christian history. Over the course of her life, she wrote uh, 8,000 poems that were uh, converted, like put to music. And so, so she, I mean, she wrote more than 8,000 poems, but she wrote 8,000 that got turned into music, okay? So that's amazing. And in fact, there was a period of time where in the hymn books, the hymn book, uh, the people who were producing the hymn books actually changed her name on a bunch of her songs because they didn't want people to get distracted in their hymn books by how many of the hymns were written by Fanny Crosby, okay? She was prolific. Um, anyway, she was also blind her entire life, completely blind. Now think about, that's a severe, that's a severe disability, yes? So God gave her a severe disability. Now the interesting thing is that Fanny never viewed that disability. Like again, the abortion advocates would say, you should just kill her in the womb to save her from a hor- the horrible life she's going to have. And many Christians would agree, why would God do something so hateful? A loving God would never do that. Problem is, again, Fanny didn't view her disability as a curse. She viewed it as a blessing. And it forced her to rely on God. I want to read you two quotes by her. The first one I just want to read to you is from when she was aged eight. And it's her first published poem, okay? All her life, her whole life, she was blind. This is what she wrote at age eight. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. That's what she wrote at age eight. And as she grew older and she depended on God, she came to have such a wonderful experience of God through having to rely on him because of her handicap. This is what she wrote when she was older. She wrote this. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God, so the sovereignty of God, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. Notice how she doesn't, she doesn't take comfort from uh, the devil did this to me, casting demons out of her eyes all the time. She doesn't do that. She says, this was intended by the sovereignty of God. And look at this. I thank him for the dispensation. I thank him for my blindness. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind, for when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. Is that powerful or is that powerful? That's the sovereignty of God. When you realize the sovereignty of God, that he is the one who makes people mute or deaf or seeing or blind, he is in charge, then everything that happens to you is for a purpose. He wants, to, he wants to show people his goodness through you in your weakness. And he wants to have, help you to have a greater experience of him and be filled with his love and joy and peace. That's God. So, so far we've looked at choices God made for you before you were born. Okay? He chose when and where you would be born. He chose your strengths and your aptitudes. He also chose your weaknesses and your disabilities. Now I just want to spend a point here and I want to look at after you were born, he continued to be sovereign in your life. And God has been directing the pathways of your life in so many more ways than you have ever imagined before. 
And so God directs the pathways of your life. Let me read you a couple of verses just to get this started. God is sovereign over your life from start to finish. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, this is a famous verse, and this concept shows up in a few different places in the Bible. I'm going to read you another verse in just a moment. But the question is, what does that mean? What does that mean that I have plans in my heart, but the Lord directs my steps? How does, how does he direct my steps, right? Jeremiah 10, 23 says this, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself and that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. So here we see the, this idea repeated again, this idea that we might have plans in our hearts, but it's actually not up to us where we end up, where we end up going, okay? So now, before I talk about what that means, we should first of all talk about what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that God is... Like some people take this doctrine too far. They take these verses and they say that God is direct, has predetermined all of your steps. So everything is predetermined for you. You're just walking out exactly what he planned out for you to do and you don't have any free will choice in the matter. That's not what these verses are saying, okay? Um, there's no question that you and I have choices. We make choices and we reap what we sow. We reap the consequences of the choice we make. For example, you might be here today and I'm just going to pick on smoking, okay? Smoking is not the worst thing in the world. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something, right? So you choose to smoke. If you choose to smoke, I'll tell you that right, right now, just, you know, this might be a bombshell for you, that, but you smoking was not, you know, part of God's plan for your life. He didn't make a plan for you and say, I'm going to make, you know, such a so-and-so a smoker, okay? If you're a smoker, you're a smoker because you chose to smoke, okay? And if you keep smoking and smoking and smoking all your life and you never stop, the fact of the matter is you're, it's very likely that you're going to die a horrible death of some hideous disease, okay? So let's just, <laughs> there it is. I don't hate you. I love you. It's, you're great, okay? It's your choice. Fine. You're going to probably die a horrible death. Now, that wasn't, um, that wasn't part of God's plan for you. It's not like God said, okay, person X, I'm going to make him a smoker, and then he's going to die a horrible death of lung cancer, mouth cancer, whatever. That's what I'm going to do. No, no, no. You chose to do it, and you will reap what you sow. That's all in the Bible. You have free will choices to make. So you say, well, what does this mean that the Lord establishes my steps? If I'm making choices and reaping the consequences of those choices, how is God directing my steps? Well, when we look at our lives right up close at a microscope level, we see our choices and we see the consequences for those choices. So if we're looking at it up close like that, we just see every day we're making choices, every day we're reaping consequences of those choices, and that's true. But if we pull back and get a little bit of perspective, if we pull back a bit and look at our lives as a bigger picture, what we're going to find is, again, up close, we won't often see the work of God. We'll only see the work of our choices. But if we pull back and get a little bit of perspective, what we'll find, we'll be astonished. And it'll be true for all of us. And as we look back over our, path, over our past, we'll find that God has somehow uh, amazingly, sovereignly, within us making all these choices, he has turned the course of our life and guided us in ways that we never imagined before. And took us places we never thought we would go before. Up close, we can't see it. We only see our own choices. But we pull back, we will see that actually overall, God has been directing our lives. That's amazing truth. Now you say, how does he do it? Well, again, he's so infinitely creative. I think he has a lot of fun with this part. He has infinite number of ways that he directs your life on the grand scheme. Let me just give you a couple, okay? Just, just a couple things that God loves to do. One of the things God loves to do to sovereignly direct our lives is he will use unexpected events. Unexpected events. Isn't this true? I'm sure he's done it in all of our lives here. He'll use unexpected events. It might be, they might be, it might be a sad event. It might be, you know, you know, a hard event. It might be a happy, joyful, surprise event. But your life was headed in a certain direction 
And you, here you were on your life, and suddenly an unexpected major event happened, whether sad or happy, but it was a surprise. It was an unexpected event, and off of that event, your life changed course. Your life was different. It was never the same anymore. That's the sovereignty of God. And he will move you using unexpected events. Another thing God will use is what I call chance encounters. Your life, you were just merrily going along in your life, making your own plans, right? The heart of man plans his way. You're along you go, and suddenly God brings chance encounter. He brings a person into your life. That person might be sitting beside you right now because you're married, and, or whatever, might be a spouse, or you just started dating or whatever, but God just chance encounters someone, and your life has never been the same since. Your life is totally different. That's the sovereignty of God. He's directing your steps. You've been making choices, but he's been doing things in your life to move you in directions, in ways that you never planned out before. Another way that God loves to do it, and again, I, I really think this is one of his favorites, is uh, he will put thoughts in your mind and desires in your heart and make you think they were yours. You will be going along in your life. You're just going along. You've got happy plans. And one day, this thought comes into your mind. Just, and you can't get rid of it. It becomes a desire in your heart. Next thing you know, you're taking up some ministry you never thought you'd do. You're pursuing some radically new career you never, you never thought you would be interested in before. And suddenly, your life just goes like this. The Bible actually talks about this. Proverbs 21.1. I love this verse. Look at this verse. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't that a great verse? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And of course, it isn't just the king. It's you and me too. Your heart is in his hand and he can just turn the stream of that thing. He can, you can be going 90 miles an hour one direction and he just, I don't know, or puts a thought in there because he's sovereign and in charge and he puts a desire in your heart and you will just make a turn like that. Now again, some people take this verse too far, and there's people that are really, really big on, the, on you know, predestination and fate and providence, and they'll say that God, all of your thoughts are predetermined. That's not true. It's not saying here that every one of your thoughts is from God. That is not true. It's not in the Bible. Isaiah 55, God said, uh, your thoughts are not my thoughts. So clearly, we all have many thoughts that are not from God, and we have thoughts that are very ungodly, and God has nothing to do with them, some of them, Okay. What this is saying is that God is sovereign and in charge. And whenever he wants, he can put a thought in there. He holds your heart in his hand. Most of the time, he lets you have your own thoughts. But at various times, he will just make a turn, a 90-degree turn or a 180-degree turn, and he will move you in a direction through putting a thought in your heart or mind. And so we see that, yes, day-to-day we make choices, but overall, God will use many things, and he will direct the course of our lives. And again, if you, if you look back at your life, you will see this. I, I can see it so true in my life. Uh, just, I'll just quickly glaze through this story. I've told it many times before, but, um, but it just so illustrates this point of, you know, man has plans in his heart. Even if you could put up that next one there, that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Um, back in the, in the late 90s, again, as I've told before, I was going to school in uh, BC. I was taking a math degree, uh, and I was hoping to go on and take an astronomy degree, a master's degree, and I had grand plans to become an astronomer. And, uh, and while I was out there at Trinity Western NBC, I kept telling my friends three things. I don't know why I did this. But over and over again, I would tell them, I'm never going to go to the University of Manitoba. And the reason was because I just had this idea that Manitoba was boring. I've changed my mind, by the way, since then. Um, but uh, mostly because of you guys. You're so wonderful. But uh, I just said, I'm never going to go to the University of Manitoba. I'm never going to marry a girl from Steinbach. And I'm never going to become a pastor. And I told them this over and over again. 
Well, again, so the heart of man plans his way. I'm going in a certain direction. And God's sitting back going, <laughs> And within two years of me repeatedly saying that at Trinity Western, I was 0 for 3 within two years. Okay? Within two years, I was at the University of Manitoba finishing up my degree. Within two years, I was having a chance encounter at a bowling alley at a young adult event with this, I mean, just the physical attraction. I mean, it was just crazy. Uh, and uh, so awesome. We're married now. I can talk about it like that, okay, with this chance encounter with LaDon, with LaDon now Dirksen, okay? And the amazing thing is she wasn't even planning. She had plans to go to a Bible college in Germany for the year. She shouldn't even have been there. So she had plans. God suddenly said, no, you're going to stay here. He brought me home too. Boom, we meet. We're married. And within two years of that, we're married, and I'm working here at the church. See, you can have plans in your heart, but in the end, God directs your steps, yeah? In the end, he directs your steps. Now, the amazing thing about this is we can take tremendous comfort in this. Our faith can be rooted on this foundation. Trust in God. He is sovereign. He sees your whole life ahead of you. He made you for a specific purpose. He can guide you and direct you even when you mess up. And he can lead your life. And he sees every one of your days from now until your death day. He sees it all. Psalm 139, if we go back there, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I mean, God knows your future, and your life is in his hands, and you can't even die until he says you die. Look at this, Job 12 verse 10, in his hand, that's God's hand, in God's hand is the life of every living thing, every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. So you can trust him. He is sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over your abilities. He's sovereign over your disabilities. He's sovereign over your days. He sees the future. Your life is in his hands. He can, so nothing can harm you unless he says it's allowed to happen for your good. There's only two ways we can respond to this truth about the sovereignty of God. One is we can dig in our heels and try to resist them as hard as we can. Now, if you dig in your heels and try to resist them as hard as you can, God can do a few different things. And first of all, he's merciful, thank goodness, and he will give you many chances. But if you decide to just dig in your heels and dig in your heels and resist his plan for your life, one of the things he can do is he can make you an object of his wrath. Think about Pharaoh, you know, in, in the Exodus um, uh, out of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt there, he resisted God, resisted God, resisted God. If you read in Exodus the story of the 10 plagues, the first few plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. At a certain point in the plagues, you'll notice it changes in Scripture. It changes from Pharaoh hardened his heart to God hardened his heart. At a certain point, Pharaoh resisted God's plan, resisted God's plan, resisted God's plan, and then God said, okay, I'm going to use you anyway, but now I'm not going to use you as an object of my love. I'm going to use you as an object of my wrath. And Pharaoh actually lost his ability to repent. That can actually happen still today. You can resist God and resist God and resist God for so long that eventually you lose your capability to repent and God actually hardens your heart and he says, okay, because he's sovereign, he can get glory through you anyway. He'll just get glory through you as an object of his wrath. And then look what he did to Pharaoh after that. Another thing God can do, I mean, he, so he could just, if you resist him long enough, he could just turn you into an object of his wrath. Another thing he can do in his sovereignty is he can just take your life. Your life is, uh, is literally in his hands. Uh, you think, I think of the story of Jonah. God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah, Jonah says, no, I'm going to Tarshish. Now remember, it's an, a man has plans in his heart, but God directs his steps. God sends a storm and a shark after him. He says, you're not going to Tarshish. 
okay? And so God basically, and then Jonah's in the belly of this shark, ends up in the belly there. And by the way, it takes him three days. Have you ever thought the thing about this? It takes him three days to repent. I mean, I would have repented on chomp number one. <laughs> Just, he gets one bite of me. I'm sorry, Lord. I'll go to Nineveh, anything you want, right? On day three, but God puts him, locks him up in the belly of a shark, and he says, you're going to die or you're going to do what I want. And on day three, it finally gets through Jonah's head. I'd like to live. Okay, I'll go along with your plan. You can resist God, resist God, resist God. You will cause yourself all kinds of pain that weren't in his original plan. You can make yourself an object of his wrath. Or you can just play and get your life taken away from you. Or you can just say, I'm willing. Did you know that that's all you have to give to God? See, this is one of the beauties of the sovereignty of God. You don't have to be super spiritual. You don't have to have all this crazy, you know, visions from God and dreams. It's great when he gives us those, but you don't have to have all that. Because you don't have to figure it all out. This is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. You don't have to figure it all out. Some people think they got to hear pages of information from God before they can act on anything. No, you don't. He's sovereign. He's directing your paths. All you have to give him is an I'm willing and he'll take you along. You just give him an I'm willing. It can even be a very weak I'm willing. I think many times we just give him the weakest, the most faintest of I'm willings. Okay, Lord, I think I'm willing. I'm mostly willing. I don't want to be not willing. And he says, okay, that's good enough for me. And he directs your steps. He directs your steps that way. Last week, Pastor Ray preached a phenomenal message, awesome message on great faith and great exploits. This is the launching pad for great faith. When you realize that he's sovereign over your life, he's ruling, he made you for a purpose. And your life is in his hands. And nothing can harm you. And nothing can happen to you. I mean, you can experience pain and suffering, yes. But all of it that happens is for your good and for his purpose. Then what risk shouldn't we be willing to take? Bow your heads and me. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. We don't have to have it all together. You're in charge. You're the one running the show, not us. We do not have to have it all together. Lord, we do not have to be able to hear your voice absolutely perfectly. We don't. You're in charge. You're directing our steps. All we have to do is give you some kind of a yes, I'm willing. Father, I pray that our hearts, I pray first of all my own heart. I want to give you a, a yes, I'm willing. I pray that everyone here today would give you even the faintest of yes, I'm willings. And Lord, I pray that in your sovereignty, Lord, you have tremendous plans for our good. And I pray, God, that we would not dig in our heels and resist those plans, but, Lord, that we would go along with them wholeheartedly. In your name I pray. Amen.